Would you open your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 9? And while you're turning there, we started this journey in Mark a while back because it was a book written at a time when Jesus had been ascended for a while, word was beginning to spread as to what he did or didn't do, opinions about what Jesus did, say, didn't say. And so a guy named Peter who had been restored, which I absolutely love. Jesus told Peter, Satan has desired to sift your soul as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you're restored, he was restored. And so it's Peter's story told by, written down by a guy named John Mark, also someone who had been fallen away and restored. There's this, just permeates through these pages of, a, of God's ability to, to restore us. But what I felt most importantly for us is that we're living in a time not unlike they were, where people are saying, well, Jesus said this or Jesus said that, based on nothing more than what I think he might have said or did, but what I wanted him to have said. And I would say that the only way intellectually, honestly, that we could say Jesus did or didn't say something is just go to the only thing we have that says what he did or didn't say. And the good news is we know that it's accurate, that this thing has been scrutinized. It is exactly as it was handed down to them. And we know that because there's a couple passages that you'll see later here that weren't in the original. It's noted. That doesn't mean it's less trustworthy. It's more trustworthy because we know this has stood up to scrutiny, right? So this is his word handed to us accurately. And I was praying about that and thinking about it this week as I was listening to my favorite podcast of This American Life. Um, anybody listen to This American Life? Okay. My Enneagram fives and nerds are like basically the only two that are raising their hands right now. Um, one more time, just because, uh, Amy, uh, I, I know. Uh, sorry. Solidarity. I've been listening to this podcast since before it was a podcast. In the old days when we drive around the Midwest with our little stereos, there were basically two radio stations that would come in out in Kansas, Nebraska. It was going to be Moody Bible or NPR. Those are literally the only two. And so I would sort of vacillate between the two and NPR and This American Life. Well, this week, Ira Glass, who is the host, um, who is um, an atheist, a Jewish heritage, and a Jewish background, but is not a believer. And this topic of this week's show was about them, uh, the weight of words. Has anybody listened to it yet out of curiosity? This one, you, you're like me, get back like TJ, guys with long commutes to work, Darren, yeah. Uh, and the question of weight of words. And so he starts talking about his faith and how he used to believe. And he's talking to his friend, Pastor John, who is a Methodist pastor, who says that, I don't really believe the Bible anymore as literally as I just, we get the big ideas. Am I getting this right? Those who have listened to it. The big ideas of the Bible, love your neighbor as yourself, love the Lord your God. That's what Pastor John is saying, the Methodist pastor. And I, you know, which I'm thinking, well, that's kind of sad as a pastor, but that's what he's saying. And Ira says, and my question to John, which I've always wanted to ask was, I get that you should love your neighbor. I get that. That's, you could be nice to each other. That seems like it would make the world better. But why do you have to love God? What does that really matter? And he says something along these lines of like, what does God care to sit around for 45 minutes to listen to you tell him how good he is? Like that's the question that, by the way, if you're not a believer, that's an intellectually honest question. And he says, as long as you get the big stuff right, like love your neighbor as yourself, you know, if you get that stuff right, what does he care? 
That is the question that's being floated around in our society right now by atheists. You've got the question of a guy like Pastor John who's saying, well, you know, as long as we get the big ticket stuff right. And then you've got the theology because we're a sophisticated society. Am I right? We're classy. We're a sophisticated, intelligent society. So the theology this week from one of the most sophisticated shows on network television, The Bachelorette, I'm looking because I know if you're laughing hard, you've been watching it. Actually, what's happening is you're not watching it, so you're looking, if you're watching, you're looking down, and those that are watching it. Look, I, I was honest about my, uh, my proclivity for a nerd show. Who's watching The Bachelorette? Just shoot me real straight. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, Nick, that is, a, okay, well, that's actually Young Love, so I get that, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, a bold, that's a bold move right there. Uh, <laughs> Armando, shoot me real straight. No? Marisol, but are you sitting in the living room when she's watching it? Okay. <laughs> Me neither. Um, and Shannon doesn't watch it either. I mean, and no judgment. I watch some really silly things. So I got no judgment for you. I mean, I, you can look at the kids know, like I'm watching some weirdo stuff, but <laughs> documentaries and stuff. Anyway, this week, now if I get this wrong, you bachelorette people tell me if I'm getting this wrong. Uh, you got, your, you got your bachelorette, Hannah, who they're auctioning off for, is that how it works? Are they paying money for? No? So, now you got television. That's television right there. Um, so you got, your, you got your bachelorette, and then you got your, uh, your dudes that are trying to become the, the dude. And, and on the one hand, you got the bachelorette, who is a Christian, um, who says, I love Jesus above all in her Instagram. And she, which of course, if you say it on your Instagram, it's true, right? <laughs> Insta, bam. So she says she loves Jesus. And then you got Luke, who's been cast as the villain. Okay, this year he's a Christian guy. Am I getting this right, Nick? Okay. He, uh, he's been cast as the villain because he gets on the show and, uh, and can't believe that she might have had um, sexual relations with men on the show as if he's never seen the show before. I've never seen the show and I knew that. Right, like this is some big shock to him. But here's, so here's what happens on the show, and it's been then reported widely on, on the Twitter, is you got Hannah who says, um, the, the quote from Hannah, which I don't have with me, is, regardless of anything that I've done, I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. It's all washed. And if the Lord doesn't judge me and it's all forgiven, then no man, no woman, anything can judge me. That's Hannah's theology saying, as her justification, I have... Uh, slept with a, a couple of these dudes, I don't know how many, more than one, less than 10 um, of these dudes. So that, she's saying, I can do that. And then on the other hand, you got Luke saying, well, let's talk about sex and the marriage bed should be kept pure. Now, when you read those, both of them, first of all, Luke's on a show, right, to begin with. Like, so Luke, Luke's already starting off like 50 yards back in a 100-yard dash on this one. And so he's going to sit there and throw out what he says is true. And, and Hannah throws out what she says is true. And don't walk out yet. At least let me finish the sermon. Then you, then you can walk out. Both of them are right. Now, 
That said, both of them are right. Jesus' grace is that big. Luke is right that the marriage bed is to be kept pure. Both of them are right in principle, but they've missed this big picture of what Jesus wants to do, that the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration, turns it no longer into a conversation about what I should or shouldn't do, and based on a conversation of who I am and who I am not. Because if I am this, then there are behaviors that are just transfigured right out of me. So it isn't a behavioral modification thing. And his grace is that big. And thank God it is. Because none of us would get in if it were based on anything on work that we have done. And on the other hand, there are consequences to decisions that I make that are covered by the grace of God, but do not cover the consequences of those decisions in my life. The heartbreak, the divorce, the, the, the wrecking of people's lives, that doesn't get covered by that. It's, but the forgiveness, that said, that's the question of this, of whether you're Luke, whether you're Hannah, whether you're Ira Glass, or whether you're Pastor John, all of your theology is brought to bear in the Mount of Transfiguration, including my own. Now, with that in mind, shall we read the word of God? Mark 9, verse two. After six days, after six days after Jesus asked Peter, who do people say I am? Who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Messiah, you're the son of God. This is this big moment for Peter. And he says, after that, then Peter, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, verse two, and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Now he had said to the disciples the week earlier, some of you standing here today are not going to die before you see the kingdom of God come in power. Now some believe that's an eschatological statement. It's, I don't think it is because here it is just a week later and some of them, three of the 12 are standing here and now about to see Jesus. They're gonna see behind the veil. They're gonna see into the kingdom of God and what is really going on in the upside down world. Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than Anyone in the world, including Tide, could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. I believe it's the Luke version that says they were talking about Jesus' exodus. They were, I believe, encouraging Jesus. It's, you're going to do this. It's going to be awesome. Because we all have moments where we need that kind of an encouragement. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, now look what he doesn't say, Messiah. He just said, you're the Messiah, but now he says, Rabbi. He hasn't quite got the moment yet. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. The word here is Sukkoth, Sukkoth, I don't really know. Sukkoth, let's just say Sukkoth for the purpose of, for, for the purposes of the 1130 service, this is the Sukkoth. The Sukkoth, it's the word for tabernacle temple, like the tabernacle of, so it's not like, let's go camping, let's get out our gear and go to the woods. This is, let's put up tabernacles for you guys. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I love this part. Have you ever been so anxious and you just start running your mouth? You're like, yeah, Darren, that's you every Sunday. Look what, look what he says. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. So he's so scared. He just starts running his mouth. And then a cloud appeared, verse seven and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, and I have this underlined in my Bible, listen to him. 
Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, as they were coming down the mountain, this is like a 9,000 foot mountain. Mount Hermon is where it most likely happened. Like oxygen level difference, kind of high. So as they're coming down from the mountains, Jesus uh, gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept it to themselves, discussing what, quote, rising from the dead, unquote, means. They were trying to figure it out. And Jesus knows that. And so he says to them, they ask him, actually, what, what, what are the teachers of the law? They're telling us that Elijah must come first. They're reading from the Old Testament and the prophets. And, and Jesus replied, well, to be sure, Elijah does come first. And he restores there's that word, restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. And in Matthew's version, I think Matthew 17, it says, and they knew that he was talking about John the Baptist. So this is a moment where they're trying to figure it out, and they're going to the word, to Jesus, the Logos, and he is helping them to transfigure it out, if that Makes sense. And if it doesn't now, it will in about 10 minutes. That's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would be the light and the lamp that you promised it would be for us. We're living in a world where theology is just flying at us from podcasts, from social networks, from television, from Netflix. And we're just trying to figure it out. And I pray today, Lord, that your word would do what it promises to do, which is to transfigure, to transform even us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The word transfigure here is a word that is used a few times in the New Testament. It's where we get our word metamorphosis from, like a caterpillar. Romans 12, to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's the word that's happening here. It's a word that what the Holy Spirit wants to do, it says one day we will be transfigured, transformed, 1 Corinthians 15, that one day we will have a body like Moses and Elijah, like shining and glorified and healed. And then while that is going on, right, Tammy? Isn't that great? That should be all of our responses because that's pretty big news. And on the way to that, we are not just gonna be transformed spiritually then, but we are being transformed as we are moving forward to that right now. Colossians, Romans 12, there's all kinds of promises about a transformation that's happening for all of us. And in this passage, I don't think Jesus was just doing a neat parlor trick. Like, hey, watch, I can walk on the bathwater. I'm gonna show you this trick I can do. It wasn't like, look, I can glow in the dark. Isn't that awesome? I don't think that's at all what he was doing. I think that three of the four gospel writers included this because there's something here that we ought to know, that we ought to carry with us for the rest of his life about number one, his identity, about number two, his intentions towards us, and number three, his invitation to us. His identity. This is a recapitulation of what happened on Mount Sinai. There's hardly any other way to read this. And if you were a Jewish reader or if you're a Jewish man experiencing this, all you're seeing is a big mountain, a lot of light, a cloud, and Moses, okay? So you're, you are immediately going, oh, oh, Mount Sinai, I got that one. I know that one. And here they are on this mountain 
And if you go back the thousands of years, what happened when Moses went up the mountain was the smoke, the light, and he gets the Ten Commandments and the law. And he comes back down, and true story, he's glowing like a glow-in-the-dark watch. Do they still make those? Am I that old? Okay. Thanks, Tammy. They had, they're, they're called an eye watch or whatever they're called. <laughs> those glow. But, but those days, like, would, you'd have to put it in front of the light, and you go in the dark, and then it would glow, but it would be a diminishing glow. You had to keep going back to the light. And so when Moses came down the mountain, he didn't know he was glowing. And so the people tell him, oh, you're glowing. So he puts a, a veil over his face for the glow. Does anybody remember this story? If you don't, it's really fascinating. Exodus 33, I encourage you to go back and just read the whole thing. That's what they're seeing here with one major difference. And that is this, Moses was there, Elijah was there, so he's not either one of those. Jesus isn't reflecting the glow, he is the glow, right? He's not reflecting it back, he's the source of it. Jesus would say that, look, I'm not one of the prophets, I'm the one been sending you the prophets. I think it's in Luke 10 or 11, or someone tell me later, but when he just says it sort of as a passe statement, oh, I was there when Satan fell like lightning from heaven. Like, I was there. I saw it. Before the time memorial, I was there. This, what is happening here, he has become, verse 3, dazzling, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. He is standing there with Moses, with Elijah. He is, verse 3 of Hebrews 1, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of of his being. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a wise man. He is God. And that matters to us. The Hebrews were living in a culture with Greeks and Romans. And I've shared this before, but it's worth repeating. That Greek and Romans, their culture taught that there was this thing that if it could be understood and discerned behind the universe called the Logos. And if you could understand it and you could align your life to it, then you would understand the meaning of life, the weight of it, the meaning, the, what the Bible calls the kavod, the glory of God is that, the weight and the meaning, which is why John says we beheld his glory, John chapter one, and the quote Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And you understand what this means? That no longer is the, the rules behind the principle of the universe some principle that I could understand. It's a person that I can know. And that changes everything. If it's just about principles and memorization like Pastor John says, that's really sad because then it's just about behavior modification. And anybody been in a behavior modification area of your life? It's one step forward and two steps back. It wasn't about that, which is why Pastor John says, well, if I just get the big picture stuff and I, I don't really, you know, the rest of it is just whatever, it's sad and it's incomplete because the Logos isn't a principle, it's a person. I love the way that N.T. Wright puts it in his book, For All God's Worth. It's worth reading. He's an Anglican uh, and like any good Anglican, he's got a great accent. But he says this, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? 
that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham. It's nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, listen, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. And not the Lady Gaga shallows. Like the shallowness of, like I respect Ira Glass, if you're gonna be an atheist and not believe, he has actually got more courage than Pastor John because he's at least willing to say that it's either all or nothing. There is no middle ground. Take up your cross and follow me was not a negotiation. There is no middle ground. I can't say the old C.S. Lewis line. I can't say that Jesus was just a good man because he runs around saying stuff like this and if I, that means he's not a good man. It means he's a liar or that he's crazy. But then he proves it with his resurrection. I've been to the empty tomb and I pray that those of you that get to go with us in February, you're gonna see it as well. There's a reason why you can go to the tomb of Muhammad. It's still venerated. There's a reason you can go to the tomb of Buddha. Look, in Venice, you can go see the thumb of St. Mark, okay? We humans, we'll venerate anything. You think for a second that if Jesus' body was here that there wouldn't be a place somewhere that we'd all be lining up? It isn't because he's gone, because he resurrected and he ascended. There is no middle ground. He is God and this supernatural transfiguration of him. The miracle, I think, isn't that he had uh, made himself bright on that day. I think the miracle is that he was holding it out the rest of his life, that he hid it somehow. That's the bigger miracle here, that he is that. And somehow he managed to keep that down until after his resurrection that's his identity. Now that said, if he's God, if he's come to earth, wouldn't it be good to know what his intentions are? Like the terrifying fact that the hurricane has become human, it might behoove us to know whether this guy is here to kill us or not. What is his intentions towards us? And it says here, right, that they saw the cloud coming down. And I think the King James says that they were, quote, sore afraid, unquote. That's King James where they were freaked all the way out all the way out. And why is that? Because they knew that when the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, a word that you don't actually see in the Bible, but the principle you see, God's presence come to dwell with us, comes to earth, it kills people. Now, my Western sensibility, that's insulting and I don't like that. Um, I think it was Tim Keller. I'm trying to get my reformed paper, so I keep quoting Keller, uh, just in case. Um, I'm just kidding with you. I don't even know what we are. We're, we're like non-denominational mutts. Like we're a little, we're Holy Spirit. We're, you know, we're charismatic. We're Baptist. We're, we're just Jesus people. Let's call us that. But Tim Keller talks about this principle of the idea of being in God's presence that it would kill them. And that that's insulting until you think about if you're walking down the street in New York, and this is true, what he says, and an elephant falls out of the window and crushes you. Like, are you offended by that? I mean, it's unfortunate, Disappointing, yes, but it's not offensive. It's just true that the being of the elephant will overwhelm the being of Darren and crush me. 
that if I look into the sun long enough, he continues to say, that I will see I'm burning a hole in my retina because the being of the sun will overwhelm the being of my eyeball. That's what it means. And so they know that, and they know that when God's glory comes down, that it says the warning was, don't even let your, your animals touch the mountain. They knew the stories of the priests who would go in with a rope tied around their leg and a bell around it, because if that bell stopped ringing, they got to start bringing him out. They're just dragging him out because he went in unprepared to the Shekinah glory in the temple, in the tabernacle, okay? When they fell on their face and they were afraid, they had good right to be afraid because they were going to die and they knew it. And I love Matthew's version because Matthew says that Jesus saw them and reached out and touched them. The glory of God has come down, the glory of God that should have killed them. And what happened? They did not die. Jesus was giving them a glimpse of what was to come. That he is God and that the chasm that every religion ever has ever taught is there is a chasm between us and God. And only modern Western thinkers don't like that or don't think it's true. Every other religion believes that and every other religion teaches that the only way to do that is we build a bridge to get back to God. And Jesus is there to say, not only am I God on the other side of the chasm, I'm the bridge across it. His intentions were to restore us. When Peter says, hey, let's build a tabernacle, Tabernacles were meant to protect them from the glory of God. He was looking for a protection device and Jesus says nothing, but we're not gonna build a tabernacle. Jesus himself says, I'm gonna tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days. I'm the temple and you are going to be the temple of the Holy Spirit that you will now, by the way, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the end of Matthew, so your mark, either pull your ears, but I'm gonna tell you how this ends. It, in the Matthew telling of this, Jesus on the cross, it speaks of the temple veil being torn in two from top to bottom. The thing that was meant to protect us from God and his glory was ripped down because we wouldn't need it anymore in Christ. His intentions were not to destroy us, but to restore us. His intentions are good. To say that the weight, that the glory, the... I wish I had a better example of this, and you theologians, you can send it to me if you can think of one. But the glory of God, the weight, the meaning, the penny drop, the... When you've seen a good movie and suddenly it all comes together, an M. Night Shyamalan movie... And you've been watching it the whole time and about the moment when you realize, oh, he's been dead the whole time. You know which movie I'm talking about? The whole thing came together. The weight of it came together. I now understood it. That's the glory of God. It's just a tiny snippet of what the glory of God means. It's the feeling, the physiological feeling you experience when something all comes together. That's what Jesus is, the weight, his identity. He has come here to bring us all back to him again. The weight, the kavod, the meaning, the penny drop, the M. Night Shyamalan moment of eternity. He was alive the whole time. His invitation to us, we know his identity is that he's God. We know that his intentions are good. And he throws this invitation out, which is to listen to me. Listen to my son. And they looked up and Moses and Elijah were gone. 
Jesus didn't come to abolish the prophets, the law. He came to fulfill it. He was fulfilled. The prophet Elijah, the law of Moses, fulfilled in Jesus. Listen to him. That's the invitation for us, is to listen to him. And it's such an amazing promise because it means that he is speaking to us. Hebrews 1 tells us that he is the exact representation, the picture of who God is, the perfect picture of who God is. Hebrews 1, 1, it says that in old times they spoke through the prophets, but now I speak in my son. I speak in son. It's the language of Jesus. The language of God is Jesus. Language of God is love, to put it differently. And our hope, our goal, our dream is to speak Jesus fluently. If you've taken a French class, my daughter Lauren is taking French in high school. We, we have an amazing education system here in the United States. But can you go to France right now and have a conversation with somebody in French? No. How many classes have you taken? How many years? Two years. Okay. But you got an A in French. Okay. Here's why that's germane. It's not just her. Anybody here that's taking Spanish or French or whatever in American class, the vast majority of us will leave that class knowing how to answer the test and not speak the language. By the way, you send a kid in Haiti to English school for six months and they come out and they can speak fluently. It's a different way of studying. It's a different way of living. That's what Jesus wants us. Because Hannah and Luke answered the questions right and missed the language itself of what God wants to do in our lives. They were speaking the language, they were answering the right questions on the test and missing what Jesus was trying to say, what God was saying through Christ to us. Speak fluently his language. And the way that we learn his language is in the real life, day-to-day, supernatural journey with Jesus. I spent two summers in Guatemala when I was 16 and 17 years old. And to this day, 30, let's say 20 years later, give or take 10, I can still get around at a garage sale. I can still order my food at the, the wonderful Mexican grocery in Franklin. I can, but you know, I've lost because I wasn't using it. I wasn't practicing it. But the way I learned it wasn't in a book. I learned it in life, walking with other people in that life, learning the language that way. It says, let the word of God, Colossians 3, dwell in your hearts. Let the word, the logos of God dwell in you as you're walking with Christ and day after week, after month, after year, you will get what Romans 12 promises us, which is to be transformed, transfigured by the renewing of your mind. That's why you look at somebody like, thing, like what you see from The Bachelorette or what you see from Pastor John. Or I, and it tends to make us angry because, why well, you got it all wrong. You're missing it all up. Instead of just saying, you know what? That's the walk. That's where they are in their walk with right now. They're learning and maybe they need to learn more, but I promise so do you. So we can have a lot of grace as we learn to speak the language of Jesus. To say, I'm not Holy Ghost Junior. It is not my job. You know, so, you, know you do that. So, I don't know, maybe you don't do that. I'm like, hey, scooch, scooch, scooch over, Jesus. Come on, make room up here on the throne. I, I, I'm going to tweet this. <laughs> You're going to love it. Just let the Holy Spirit do his job in you and in me. It doesn't mean that there aren't principles. It doesn't mean that there aren't morals. 
Doesn't mean that in the word of God there are things that he says don't do this, not because it's gonna punish you and damn you for eternity. It's because it's, not, it's, gonna, hurt, it's gonna ruin your life. It's gonna ruin your marriage. It's gonna ruin your relationships. It's gonna make you sad and depressed and frustrated. There's a picture, and I'm gonna end with this, that he's giving us in the cloud itself. The cloud has come over, right? The mountain and Jesus and Peter and James and John are there. The cloud was a picture of the glory and the weight of God appearing on earth. In the Exodus account, when the people of Israel were taken out of of, uh, Egypt, it says that a cloud, a pillar of cloud led them by day and a pillar of fire by night. Anybody grow up with flannel graphs? Okay. And what, when you saw the flannel graph, it was like a, like, a, like a smoke stick, right? Like a stick of smoke up in the front, like a giant pillar of smoke. And, if, and the idea was, if I see where that is going, then I just follow the, the chimney of smoke. That's where I'm supposed to go. Psalm 105 verse 39 tells us something profound. It says that as he was leading the people of Israel out, that he, listen, put a cloud, covered a cloud over the top of them. Now, it's summer in Middle Tennessee. And that means every time you open the door and you walk outside, it's like you've walked into somebody's mouth. Just hot and swampy, and all you Southern California people moved out here, because you, you know, whatever, you're like, humidity? What the heck is this? I can like taste it, it's so hot. But when you're out in the yard, or you're out walking around, and a cloud goes over the sun, make you worship, won't it? <laughs> Only a people who have air conditioning would think of clouds as bad news. In the rest of the world, clouds are a gift. When you're wandering around the Ugandan bush, right? We're walking around, and when those clouds came over, it just felt glorious. Look what word I just used. Because under the cloud wasn't meant to be burdensome, it's a gift. So when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, absolutely. And when Paul goes on to say, look, to flee fornication, Flee sexual impurity. Flee these things. It's not because he's trying to be a buzzkill. He's just trying to get you back under the cloud where it's at. Hannah's asking the wrong question. Can I do this? Bible says, yeah, all things. You can do all things, but they're not profitable. Get back under the cloud where your life can flourish, where it's cooler, and let the cloud lead you. And if you are in a place where you feel like it's just hot and it's scorching and my life is burning down, maybe you just need to scooch back under the cloud. Maybe you need to stop asking, can I get away with this? And just say I'm asking the wrong question. It's not about whether I can or I can't. It's whether I am or I'm not. Who am I? Am I being transformed? And I've, with all my heart, believed this. His grace is big enough that when you walk out today and you fall back down in the same sin that you've been struggling with, his grace is big enough and good enough and it'll forgive it again. Now that said, Romans 6 verse one says, shall I keep on sinning then and let the grace of God abound? And Paul says, no, 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 no. You're missing the point. Don't do that. That's stupid. Because of the consequences of it. That's just the letting the word of Christ dwell deeply in your heart. 
Let the spirit of God lead you. Stay under the cloud. Let that, the word of God, it's Colossians 3 verse 16. Let the word of Christ, the logos of Christ dwell in you. And the verse right before that, by the way, it says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. That speaks like a referee, like yes on this, no on that. And the problem is that some of us say, well, you know what? I don't feel guilty about that at all. So the ref isn't throwing a flag on the play. That's why he immediately follows it and let the word of Christ dwell in you. Because sometimes there are things I might feel peace about that the word of God says, no, 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 under the cloud. Last thing I'm gonna say, I'm gonna let you go. The word be transformed in Romans 12 is a verb like Ephesians 5, be filled with the spirit, be being filled. It speaks of like a, something that has a start and a continuation to it. Be driving to Los Angeles means that I'm getting in the car and I'm moving and as long as I'm driving, the verb continues on. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind means that today I'm a little more transformed than I was yesterday. It means today, I love the way that Bob Goff says it. So it's really, I can sum up being a Christian in that tomorrow I wanna wake up and be the next most humble version of Bob. We complicate it, don't we? But tomorrow, I really wanna wake up be the most next humble version of Darren, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in those moments of letting, struggling with the behavior, struggling with this, I'm trying to figure it out, let it be transfigured out of your life, transformed out of your life. His grace is big enough to cover you while you're going through it, and his love is big enough to welcome you and cheer you on, and his Holy Spirit is big enough to power you through it all. Stand to your feet, and let's pray. Thank you again for coming to the 11.30. Just so you know, in future, my goal is to get you out by 12.45, so a little bit of a flag on the play for me. But, but y'all are comfortable, right? So I'm comfortable with you in here. So just know that that's our future goal. But for today, thanks for being patient with me. Heavenly Father, today it's my prayer that we would be transformed that we would dwell, let your word dwell in us, chavod, your meaning, your purpose, your cloud be over us. And I'm thankful that the only reason we can do that is because you let your glory be taken from you on the cross so that your glory could be placed on us in resurrection. And isn't that the answer, God? The reason we would love you, the reason it's important isn't for you, but for us to understand what you've done. What else could I do but love you for that? That's so huge. And we do love you for that. And I pray for the people we spoke about today, Ira Glass and Pastor John and Hannah and Luke. They're not just names on Twitter or voices on a podcast. They're people that you want to save. They're people that you want to flourish under the cloud of your glory and your weight, your kavod. Thank you. We pray that today as we leave out of here that your word would be a lamp and a light for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>